Good evening, I'm glad you're here. Our winter Bible study this year is the book of Psalms. My experience is that church people either love Psalms or they can take them or leave them. I was in the the second category for most of my life. I'm not really much interested in poetry, never enjoyed it that much. Tried to read some in school, you know, back in the day, and, and uh, it just didn't connect with me. And Psalms struck me that way as well. It, it was kind of a book made up of random stories. I'm a history guy, and, and the Psalms seem to be disconnected from any kind of actual uh, historical setting, and so uh, I, I just didn't have much interest in them. And I would say it was a few years ago that, <clears throat> that, that the Lord really convicted me that I had dismissed a massive portion of His Word by not going to the Psalms more often. So I decided that, um, that if God felt the necessity to inspire the Psalms and to preserve the Psalms, the least I could do is study the Psalms. In the process, something strange happened. It had happened to me once before when I was a senior in college, quite by accident. I learned that I needed two English credits to graduate with an English minor. I already had a history minor, which won't surprise you, but I thought a a second minor, that'd be a good thing. Take one class each semester. And so I went to look at the catalog of English classes. And the only things I could work into my schedule was in the fall semester, I took three hours of Shakespeare And in the spring semester, I took three hours of Chaucer. Both semesters started exactly the same way. What am I doing here? And yet both semesters also finished the same way, which with the time spent understanding what I was reading, I came to truly enjoy it. The Psalms falls into that category. If you're not wild about the Psalms, it's probably because you just haven't camped out there for a while. We all know the tourist Psalms. We read Psalm 23. Maybe we like Psalm 1. Psalm 90 is a, is a, a fan favorite. Psalm 105. You know, there's a few Psalms that, that you probably know that you're familiar with. At least if, if I read them, you'd go, oh yeah, I recognize that one. But those are tourist spots. I don't want you to be a tourist in the Word of God. I want you to be an explorer. I want you to learn how to dig deep. And honestly, uh, let this week be an introduction. Hopefully, at the end of the week, you'll be a little bit more uh, inclined to go find your way to the Psalms and see just what it is that, that is there and why so many believers over the centuries not just the 2,000 years of Christian history, but over the centuries before that, have come to the Psalms and left hugely encouraged. What I've discovered is that when I cannot articulate to the Lord what I'm feeling, there's always a Psalm that does that for me. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. We're actually not going to cover... um, 150 psalms in the next four days. But I want to start by giving you some some of the structure of the psalms. If you can understand why it is the way it is, uh, it helps make sense of of really what's going on. Now, I've, I've I've entitled this series, Psalms, the Songbook of the Faithful. But honestly, the psalms is not so much a hymnal. It's not a songbook primarily, although there are musical instructions given Uh, that are attached to many of the psalms, but it truly is more a a, a book of poetry uh, from start to finish. Now, it can be divided in several different ways. Let me just give you some some possibilities. You can study the psalms by the authors that that we have recorded here. For example, um, obviously, David is the primary author. He wrote more psalms than anybody else. But besides the 70 or so psalms that David wrote, there are other authors, including Solomon. Solomon authored Psalm 72 and Psalm Psalm 1, 
32, I think. I, no, I, I, I missed that. Uh, but, but he has two psalms. Asaph, uh, a worship leader, wrote Psalm 50 and Psalm 70 through 83. The sons of Korah authored Psalm 42 and 43, also 44 through 49, that little section. Um, a, a man named Etham wrote Psalm 89. Haman, the son of Korah, wrote 88. Moses, the song of Moses that we're given in the first five books of the Bible is repeated in the Psalms as Psalm 90. I'll explain why that is. 49 of the Psalms are anonymous. That is about a third of the total. Uh, we have no author to. Many of the Psalms are connected to historical events, but you have to work to figure it out. They seldom uh, place themselves there. They're more a poetic reflection on what God is doing. And so, uh, particularly David's Psalms, we can, we can often try and fit what David is saying with some moment of need or crisis in his life. There are categories to the Psalms. There are hymns, Psalms 145 through 150. There are psalms of thanksgiving, poems of gratitude, which, are, which include Psalms 30 through 32. Uh, a great number of psalms are, uh, are in the category of lament. In fact, if you want the simplest division of the book of Psalms, you take the 150 psalms and you can generally divide them into two categories, praise and lament. See, here's the reason. The Psalms are filled with theology. They're filled with truths that tell us something about God. But something you may not realize is God never speaks directly to his people one time in the Psalms. We see in the kings, God often delivering messages. Certainly in the prophets, thus saith the Lord is the phrase that declares the authority of the word because it doesn't come from the prophet, it comes from God himself. Psalms is not like that. Psalms is unique in that it is designed to be a collection of, of authors who are grappling with what it means to believe in a good God, but to live in a broken and wicked world. And that contrast, that, that moral dilemma is really the context for most of what we have in this book. And at times, the praise breaks out. It is a mark of, of God's good works. It is a psalmist in some historical moment seeing God at work, and so he lifts up praises. But about half the time, it's the psalmist seeing the world around him and straining to find evidence that God is there. How long, O Lord, until you remember me? Praise and lament. It's, it seems appropriate to me because it strikes me that the way we live our lives is a constant bouncing back and forth between the high points and the, and the confidence that God is at work and, and I see him everywhere I turn and the dry spells when God seems to be absent or at least silent. There are royal psalms written about Israel's kings. There are enthronement songs that were probably used as a part of uh, inaugural um, coronation ceremonies. There are penitential psalms, particularly the ones you'll recognize are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. That is, that is David uh, following his uh, uh, unfortunate fall into sin with, uh, with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, he cries out to God in the red-hot passion of a heart that is broken because of his actions. He is beside himself because of his sin. Psalm 32 is the same event, the Bathsheba story, but written years later with a mature kind of reflection looking back and, and, and encouraging his, his hearers to avoid sin because while sin promises great things, in the end it always bites like a viper. Those are called penitential psalms. Then there are wisdom psalms, which give us a taste of, of what we find as we work through the Bible. Following psalms, we have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, the books are called wisdom literature, and the psalms dabbles in that. 
They were written somewhere between the 15th century B.C., Psalm 90, written by Moses, uh, all the way to sometime in the 6th century B.C., after the exile. In other words, the Psalms cover most of the Old Testament. They take us from Moses leading his people across the wilderness to the, to the, uh, the very verge of the promised land, all the way to the people returning from exile and coming back to that promised land once again. It's a huge historical span of time, uh, almost a thousand years. God never speaks directly here, so the Psalms are primarily written from a human perspective. But the question asked and answered throughout the Psalms is, how does God's activity relate to the human experience of life? How does sovereignty and goodness relate to brokenness and evil? These psalms are written by people who are struggling to understand their circumstances. They had not lost faith in God, even when they were tempted. Psalm 73 is a story that, 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 that has the psalmist saying, uh, I looked at the successes of evil men, and I almost let my foot slip. In other words, I almost lost my faith. Evil men seem to be successful. Have you not grappled with this in our own generation? With the church trying to, 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 to receive money, for, for people to give money voluntarily so that the church can, can impact the world in a global way, so that we can build buildings, so that we can, uh, so, so that we can do ministries. Have you, have you ever stopped to think, why do people give tens of million dollars to build football stadiums? Or, or Bill Gates giving, uh, uh, not Bill Gates, um, Ted Turner back in the day giving $100 million to the UN Population Control Agency. And I find myself in those moments saying, Lord, I'm not greedy. It's not for me. But why didn't somebody give the Church of Jesus Christ $100 million? You see, I looked with the psalmist, and I saw the success of wicked men, and my foot almost slipped. But he says, then I saw their end. You see, the problem in Psalm 73 wasn't that the psalmist couldn't come to a conclusion about wicked men and their success in the world. The problem was he was looking at them in the moment and he needed to look at the end of the road because the end of that road is not pleasant. We say, well, when is God going to judge? Listen, let's be real careful about calling on God to judge. First of all, he'll judge. He promises us he'll judge in the right time. He'll deal with evil. He'll make all things right. But folks, you and I do not want to be on the committee that determines when that happens. I almost slipped, but I saw their end. The book, we're going to really kind of start at the end. The end of Psalms ends with five poems of praise. Psalms 146 through 150. They are, they are Psalms that start with uh, basically with the, 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 the word hallelujah. Uh, my page is stuck. I have to borrow somebody else. Oh, there it is. Uh, they start with, with, it's translated in the New American Standard, praise the Lord. In some, in some translations, it's hallelujah. It is a Hebrew word, hallelujah, that is often uh, instead of being translated, praise the Lord, like it is here, it's just carried over. It's transliterated into our language. Hallelujah is one of those words like amen that comes from the original language, and we just carry it over. Hallelujah is a combination word, and it's a command. It means literally praise Yah. Hallel is to praise. Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh, the personal name of God. In this five-part conclusion, in these last five verses, if you pay close attention, uh, what you'll see is that, that this is not just a completion of the fifth book, and I'll explain about the books in just a minute, 
But this is the completion of the entire psalm, the entire collection. In all of these, in all of these instances, with, with the goal being to discover how to reconcile what we know about God with what we experience in the world, we come to the closing hymns, and what we find here are, are hymns that are meant to summarize the conclusion. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, uh, the, the book takes you all the way through Solomon's search for what will provide fulfillment in life. And he looks at his, at, at his vocation, and he looks at, at pleasure and food, and, and he, he looks at physical intimacy, and, and, and he just explores the different aspects of human life. And he gets to the end of the book, and he says, but what I discovered is it's the fear of the Lord that, that provides fulfillment. Well, that's what these psalms do. With this struggle all the way through the collection, these are attached at the end as a way of, of coming to an understanding uh, of what the proper conclusion for us is. In Psalm 146, it starts with that word hallelujah or praise the Lord, praise the Lord my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Do not trust in noblemen. In mortal man in whom there is no salvation, his spirit departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, listen, if you ever think that the Psalms are not relevant to where we are today, what the psalmist is saying is, put your trust in the Lord, don't put your trust in the government. Don't trust politicians, don't trust experts, don't trust people who tell you that they have the answers that you need in life. The answers are only to be found in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 146 is a song that celebrates the God of compassion. And he says, in every instance, you, you don't trust human leaders because God is so much more dependable. Look in verse uh, 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of those who are blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Psalm 147. He celebrates God's faithfulness, particularly to Jerusalem, but also as the God who rules over the, uh, all of nature. The first verses. Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings the wicked down to the ground. Now, the struggle is we look at that and we say, well, that's not always been my experience. I get that. And yet, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, we just aren't looking far enough down the road. I heard a story one time about two farmers who both owned apple orchards. And one of them decided that he would work seven days a week because he wanted to be successful and he wanted to make money. But the other farmer was a believer and he took Sundays off. He didn't work on the Sabbath. And they got to talking one day, and the first farmer said, you know, you're not going to be able to compete with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow you out of the water because I work harder than you. He said, well, I trust the Lord, and he's given me the permission to take a day off, so I do. And he said, well, I, I'll make you a deal. Let's plant on the same day this year, and we'll harvest at the same time, and we'll see just whether God blesses you more than my hard work does for me. And so, sure enough, we would think this story would have a great illustration for a sermon if we could say that the, the, the believer ended up with a, a bountiful crop that, that blew the other guy out of the water. But the fact of the matter was, in this particular year, the guy that worked seven days a week, his harvest turned out to be a little bit bigger. 
and boasting of his accomplishment. He said, I, uh, I thought your God was going was to give you a good harvest, but uh, you're, you're well behind me this year, so what does that say? And the farmer said, well, it tells me that God doesn't settle up his accounts at harvest time. You see, it's a trap for us to live our life keeping up with the Joneses. Because what God is doing in us and what God is doing in them and what his plans are for eternity, those have to be factored in. And we have to understand that, that God has a plan for us that's not always paid off in terms of physical prosperity. Here in 147, the celebration of, of Jerusalem and, and, and all that God does, um, there's a recognition that he uh, is over, na over nature. And yet the world is still broken. How do we reconcile that? The Psalms help us process our experience versus the theology that we say that we believe. Psalm 148, even nature responds to God with praise. I love this. In Psalm 148, it starts as they all do. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His heavenly armies. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all stars of light. Praise Him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. They are to praise the name of the Lord for He commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He's made a decree and it will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. Sea monsters and all the ocean depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, animals and all cattle, crawling things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, rulers and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. They are to praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has lifted up a horn for his people. Praise for all his godly ones, for the sons of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. Just a side note there, a horn is an Old Testament symbol for power. And so when he says he has raised up a horn for his people, I believe that's a hidden reference to Jesus Christ, who will be the glory of Israel as he is the glory of all that God accomplishes. C.S. Lewis has written a uh, a number of different kinds of works, but, uh, but he has three volumes that are science fiction. Now, that might surprise you, but, you know, he wrote the Narnia Chronicles. So that was in the fantasy realm. But, uh, but if you've never seen his science fiction, three little paperback books. But one of, the, one of the books is called Out of the Silent Planet. And it's fascinating because the silent planet in Lewis's novel is the Earth. Say, well, why did he call it the silent planet? Because out of Psalm 148, he points to the fact that every created element in the cosmos, every planet, every moon, every star, every, every comet that streaks across the sky, the testimony of the Word of God is that all of nature, all of creation sings praises to the Creator, except there's one single lonely planet who is silent. The rocks could cry out, Jesus said, but even the inanimate parts of who we are on this planet, they're broken. They're damaged by sin. In, the term, in terms of the music that sweeps the cosmos, we live on a silent planet. The Psalms provide us the way to break that silence with praise that we give to this God whose name is above all others. Psalm 149, he celebrates God's triumph over rebellious men. Let me just read verses 6 through 9. The high praises of God shall be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their dignitaries with shackles of iron, to execute against them the judgment written. 
This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. In other words, the psalmist is saying that because God is on the right side of history, because he's on the right side of eternity, that's the side we want to be on. And while we don't celebrate judgment and we never take wrath into our own hands, when, when the time is here for God to bring wrath and judgment, we will be on his side even in that. Psalm 150 finishes by a final charge emphasizing our worship. I think that's an appropriate place. The Psalms are used in ceremonies and in worship settings all, all through the history of Israel. But the final summary statement here is praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flute. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Everything that has breath shall praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Or hallelujah. You know, I, I, love, I love when we do worship here. It, um, I, I appreciate when people say that they, that they like the sermon or they think the preaching is good, but, but part of the reason that the teaching seems good here is because the table is so well set by our worship. I mean, we have worship leaders here who, who put their time and, and energy into preparing to lead us to, to the throne of grace, and, and, and I just have to tell you, they do a great job of it. I typically sit somewhere down here on the front because I need to have access to the stage. But, but sometimes I just yearn to stand somewhere in, just in the, in the heart of, of all of our people. Because I, uh, sometimes I, I stop singing and I just turn so that I can hear the wave of sound that comes from behind me as we worship. But then I turn around. And I always find that one guy. I'm like, dude, why, why, did, why, why did you come to church today? <laughs> you see, worship is the energizing reality of our faith. I said this morning that I don't consider what I do on Sundays as giving up my free day. Because Sunday energizes me to live the rest of the week. I don't know how you come to a place that worships with, with enthusiasm and you don't participate in worship. Well, I just, I just love to hear the sound around me. Well, I hate to break it to you, but it's not for you. You're not called to rest in it. You're called to participate in it. Because of who the audience really is. The psalmist from the start to the finish of this collection, they understand that the, the audience is never the crowd of people present in the moment. That audience, that congregation, they're the actors in the drama of worship. There is just an audience of one. So let me plead with you. Maybe you need to hang out in the Psalms until a song begins to break out of you. You know, we, we put the words on the screen. Say, well, I, I, don't, know the, I don't know the words. I, I don't know the music. <laughs> well, learn them. Because we are offering ourselves to the one whose name is above all other names. That's what the psalmist understood. Let me give you the, uh, I've given you the conclusion. Let me take you through the division of, these, of, of, this, of this book. You may not understand, uh, occasionally, uh, let me give you an example. If you look at Psalm, uh, there's several of them. If you look at Psalm 42, for example, we'll come back to that uh, in a couple of days. But if you look at Psalm 42, in most Bibles, what you'll see is there's a heading over the psalm. In Psalm 42, it says book 2. 
The Psalms are divided into five books. Let me give you the divisions. The introduction is Psalm 1 and 2. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But the five books of the Psalms basically run from chapters 3 through 41, that's book 1. Chapters 42 through 72, that's book 2. Chapters 73 through 89, book 3. Chapters 90 through 106, book 4. Chapters 107 to 145, book 5. And of course, um, then the conclusion that we've looked at, verse, uh, chapters 146 to 150. The Psalms are collected in five books. Now, if, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, what does the mention of five books remind you of? The Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah was the most significant foundation of Judaism. It is where they were given not only revelation about who God is, but they were given instructions about how they were to be distinctive in the world, how they were to structure their civil society so that they reflected God, so that the promise of God made to Abraham that, that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth so that could be fulfilled. The instructions for life, both, both private and corporate, are given in those five books. The Psalms are collected in a way that suggests an intentional structure also designed to be what one writer called a new Torah. Only it's not so much the, uh, the legal, uh, the, the presentation of, of, of the laws or, or the civil structure. It's, as I said, this, uh, this attempt to grapple with my experience of the human condition and how that lines up with the reality of who God teaches us that He is. These five books, uh, the first book, basically 1 through 41, those, that is primarily uh, made up of the Psalms of David. Uh, I mentioned the songs of Korah there in, the, there in book 2, uh, along with the songs of Asaph um, in book 3. Um, I'll explain, I'll explain as we go through the week uh, what each psalm is, what each book is meant to be. Because even with, within the structure of the books, there is a flow of the, in the history of Israel. And, and the psalms are collected in such a way that they ask and answer questions. And sometimes the question rolls over into the next book where the answer is offered. So this is not, as I once thought, a random collection of poet, poetry that somebody just threw together. There is a theological progression here uh, within the Psalms that, uh, that, that, lists, that help us understand uh, what it is they were trying to, to do. Let's go to the beginning. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction to the entire collection, not just to book 1. Psalm 1 begins with the celebration of the person who is blessed because they meditate on the Torah. That is, they spend time in the Word of God reading and meditating. The word Torah in Hebrew simply means the teaching. So when the psalmist is talking about the person who is, uh, who is committed to the, his, his delight is in the law of the Lord, He's talking about the Torah, but I think he's also talking about all of the foundational pieces of Judaism. In other words, this new Torah starts by highlighting the blessings that come to a man of the Word who spends time in prayer. Now, we'll look at it more closely in just a minute, but I want to I I put Psalm 2 next to it so that you can see how this serves as a a two-pronged introduction. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David that he's given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7, because God is pleased with David, he makes a pledge that it will be that the Messiah will come from the line of David and that his line will be unbroken 
forever as a mark of, of blessing. The anointed one, or the Messiah, would be the king who would establish finally God's kingdom over the entire world. He would defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. The psalm finishes by saying that all those who take refuge in this messianic king will be blessed. It's the same word that we see in Psalm 1. Together, Psalm 1 and 2 become uh, the introduction to this prayer book that is the Psalms. And, and what you'll see is this dual emphasis of the Word of God and the coming King. This dual emphasis will show up. You're going to see it over the next, the next three days. It shows up again and again and again in the book of Psalms because the point is these are the foundation stones for a man of faith. The Word of God and, for the, and the coming King. We're going to see that over and over again. Now let's, look, let, let's, uh, let's finish tonight by looking at, at these two Psalms actually uh, in, in a little bit more detail. Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The first half of Psalm 1 gives us a picture of a saint. Happy is the man who does not do certain things. He's separated from the world because, first of all, he refuses secular philosophy and a humanistic worldview. In other words, when it says, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, someone who doesn't take the advice of how to live life from a person who, who doesn't have God in his equation. Man, I wish I could get Christians to stop listening to the wrong people. Because we live in a culture, I don't care if it's politicians, I don't care if it's medical experts, I don't care if it's journalists and, and pundits on television, we're being told how to interpret the world by people who don't have a clue. He says there is, there's a happiness, a blessedness when you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, when you don't live your life according to the guidelines given to you by people who do not know God. He says he not only refuses those, that philosophy and worldview, but, but it is a person whose personal behavior resists the lure of carnality. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. That is, to be together with those who do things that are repugnant to God, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It means he's happy because he refuses to associate with those who scoff at God. Note the progression here. Walking, standing, sitting. How's it connected? Because if you listen to ungodly people and follow their counsel on how to live your life, eventually that walk finds you standing in a place with people who do ungodly things. And eventually, you find yourself seated in a place where God is the butt of the joke. Folks, I go back to Psalm 73. We fail to look far enough down the road to see the end of such people. That is not who we want to be with. The blessed man is marked by what he does not do, but then he, he's, also, he's also marked by what he does do. Look in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight, it's the language of a trustworthy companion. It means that he spends time together with the Word of God, and the Word of God has become like an old friend to him. When he sits down with that Word, there's the joy of coming 
to a friend that you've spent a lot of time with, and he knows you and, and you know him. The Bible is not some tedious, dusty rule book meant to weigh us down with regulations and laws about what we can and can't do. It's meant to be a love letter from God Himself. It is to be our friend. It is to fill our minds, our souls, with a kind of contentment that we are in the midst of something that we love desperately. Well, look at what He does. He doesn't just delight in the law of the Lord, but on His law, He meditates day and night. It's fascinating, that word meditate means to deliberately engage your mind with truth. I had somebody ask me one time, they said, I, I, I just, I don't know how to meditate. I mean, you, you, you tell me that, you know, Joshua meditates on, 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 on his word and, and, and the psalmist meditates on, on his word. I don't know how to meditate. I said, sure you do. Do you know how to worry? Because let me tell you something. The only difference between worry and meditation, they are the exact same exercise. The difference is the focus in your mind. Worry, that's when uncertainty and the unknown consumes you. Meditation, that's when solidity and truth occupies your mind. You chew on it. It's like, uh, anybody grow up with cows? I didn't grow up with cows, but I'm sure around a lot of them when I pastored in Throckmorton, Texas. I, found, I learned a lot about cows as a city boy. They even let me uh, work cattle on occasion. I did some things with cows that I never saw in any John Wayne movie. <laughs> but one of the things I learned about cows is they have multiple stomachs. And when they chew their grass... They chew it and they transfer it over time. It's a long process. It moves between stomachs because they bring it back up and they chew it more. And then they put it in a stomach and it breaks down a little bit further and they bring it back up and they chew it more. Why? Because by the time a cow is finished with grass, every last shred of nutrition has been pulled out of it. That's what the word meditation means. It means we find our way into the word of God and we begin to chew on it. And we look at it from this angle and from that angle. We hold it up like a diamond and we turn it so that we see every facet and the light shines through. And we stay with it until, it, until we suck it dry of nutrition for our soul. Occasionally, uh, a church member will say, how did you get all of that out of that passage? Listen, this is not for people who are not here. Okay, this is just because you came out tonight. I'm going to give you my secret. There is no difference between my study of the Bible and your study of the Bible, except one thing. Time. You've given me the privilege to you. You've decided to support me so that I have the privilege of time that some of you don't have to take the Word of God and just camp there until I get it. You'd be surprised how many weeks I start on Monday preparing a lesson for the next Sunday, and it's Friday when God goes, okay, you've chewed on long enough. Here's what I want you to know. Wow. Sometimes people will say, why do you get emotional when you teach? Because of the process of the Word of God making its way through me in the course of a week. There are times when I stand to preach and my emotions are raw from the experience of preparation. My, my, my emotions are, are right out here for everybody to see. And I hate getting choked up when I teach. But folks, I've been with God. And there's a delight that comes when you meditate day and night until the word has been sucked dry and all of the nutrition has flooded into your soul 
That kind of person is like a tree planted by streams of water. I love that single sentence because it tells us a couple of things. There is a special providence here for a planted tree. This is not a tree that's been sown randomly or accidentally by seeds blowing through the wind. This is a tree that's been planted on purpose, that is watched over by a gardener, that has care and protection of everything that happens in his life. When you are in the Word of God, when you are a follower of Jesus, you are a tree that has been planted on purpose. And there is a gardener nurturing the development of your soul. And the food for your soul is in the Word of God. Planted by streams of water. That is a constant source of refreshment and, and, uh, and nourishment. He yield, it's like, he's like a tree that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Yields its fruit. Listen, we have too many misunderstandings in, in, in our day and time among those who call themselves Christians and think that the absence of sin is the key to the Christian life. Do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church, but, but I'm a pretty good fellow. I never robbed a bank. Well, dandy. <laughs> Folks, the absence of sin is not the definition of a Christian. The definition of a Christian is a fruitful person who advances the cause of the kingdom by the way he lives his life. Well, there's got to be a contrast. That's the saint, but the last three verses, the last half of this psalm, tell us about the sinner. And it's powerful in verse 4 how he simply says, the wicked are not so. In fact, if we translate the Hebrew there literally, what it says is, not the wicked, not so. There's a double emphasis here, what we would call a double negative Everything he's just said in verses 1 through 3 about the man who takes his delight, who revels in the Word of God and is strengthened and is productive and fruitful in that life that he's been called to live. Not the wicked, not so. But they are like chaff which the wind blows away. That's interesting. Their life is subject to shifting winds. You know, chaff is the utterly useless part of a stalk of wheat. It's the shell that has no life or fruitfulness in it. It is light and unstable. It is removed and swept away easily. It is worthless and good for nothing. It is the definition of futility. And it's blown away. The wicked have souls that are swept away because they're not anchored to anything. They're not connected to a rock that is immovable. They blow from one place to another. No roots, no fruit, no hope. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. When the day for judgment comes, they don't have any hope. They won't fare well that day. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now notice what we've said here. Is this your experience in life? Anybody here have money like Bill Gates has money? I certainly don't. But if I compare my bank account to Bill Gates' bank account, again, I'm caught up not looking far enough down the road Psalm 1 is an introduction to the entire collection. And it tells us right up front, a man who gives himself wholeheartedly to the Word of God is a man who will be fruitful. It's a man that God will honor. Because in the end, that's a man who the Lord knows his ways. But the way of the wicked will perish. That's the end of that road. Well, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 brings us to the other pillar, if you will, the other foundational part of this book. The Torah or the Word of God is given as the focus of Psalm 1. But in Psalm 2, 
we have what is referred to as a messianic psalm. A number of the psalms are so clearly looking back on this side of Jesus. They're so clearly related to the Messiah and fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we understand uh, that, that he was the focus of these psalms all along. Now, what we'll see, particularly when we look at a lot of these Messianic psalms, is they are celebrating the Messiah who is the king. What we understand now that was hard to understand on the other side of Jesus is that, that, that the, in the Old Testament, let me, let me start over. In the Old Testament, one of the great hard things to, to reconcile were the places where that anointed one, that Messiah, was described as a coming king who would rule over all the nations. But then we turn around and we find passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 where we find out that that, that same Messiah is a suffering servant. He, he takes physical beatings. The world hates him. They abuse him. They, they want to destroy him. And Old Testament scholars for centuries grappled with, with this, this seeming inconsistency. Oh, but now it makes sense. There's an elegant solution to this incomprehensible dilemma. And it is that the king accomplishes all the prophecies of the Old Testament, but he does it in two visits and not just one. You see, we've seen the suffering servant. We've seen the one humble and, 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 and contrite before uh, in the eyes of men. We've seen him abused and physically uh, uh, persecuted to the point of death on a cross. We saw him buried, put away, a finished problem for the religious hypocrites of the day. <laughs> that lasted what? A couple of days. And then the stone was rolled away. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let us in. Because we needed to see that there was nobody home. He, he ascended. He ascended 40 days after that Easter Sunday morning. I'm, I'm, even my sanctified imagination is boggled at trying to picture that scene. A semicircle of 11 men looking up in heaven and watching Him depart. Staring as long as they could into the sky. Trying to see Him until the outline was nothing but just a silver uh, shine that disappears. And then they did exactly what we would do. They stood there and they kept looking up. So an angel was dispatched. Men of Galilee, what are you doing here? He's given you your instructions. He's told you what to do next. You go to Jerusalem. You wait for the Holy Spirit to come because He's given you a commission. He told you that you were going to take the gospel to the whole world. You were going to make disciples. You were going to baptize them and teach them to observe everything that He said. But let me tell you this. The way you just saw him go up, he's going to come down just that same way. Only the next time there's no stable. There's no unknown backwater city like Bethlehem. Next time he's the king. He's the king that Psalm 2 tells us about. Look at these verses. Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. That's the rebellion. The poet is speaking of the, of the feudal rebellion of the human race. They're literally plotting against God. That word, all the people's plotting in vain. By the way, that word is the same Hebrew word translated in the first psalm as meditate. 
while you're meditating on the Word of God, the evil rulers of this earth are meditating on a way to be free of God. Let us throw away his shackles, his ropes. You know, it's funny. The only people that ever talk about God that way are the people that don't know him. He's a judge. He's an enemy. He's bloodthirsty. (laughs) You don't know the true God. You only know the God that you've invented in your head. Verse 4. This is God's response. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I've got one quote here that that I want to read you. Um, there is, there was a, an emperor of Rome. His name was Julian the Apostate. He was called the Apostate. That's a name that came to him because Christianity had already been made legal in the Roman Empire by Constantine earlier in the fourth century. Julian was the emperor of Rome from 361 to 363, not a very long reign. But he determined when he ascended to the throne in 360 to 361, that he would reinstate pagan worship because he believed that the decline of the Roman Empire was because they had ceased to be faithful to the old traditional Roman gods and this new Christian god was messing everything up. So Julian the Apostate determined to abolish uh, the freedoms that had been implemented by Constantine. He wanted to um, excise from Rome all followers of Jesus Christ. He called them powerful enemies of our gods. And with a kind of fanatic resolve, he determined to take Christianity off the face of the earth. History records that, that Julian the Apostate persecuted so many Christians and took the lives of, of more believers in his short reign than any other wave of persecution in the history of the empire. With one simple believer before him that he had brought out as entertainment at one of his parties, a believer whose name history tells us was Agaton. With so many Christians being put to death, the emperor was said to have asked Agaton, how is your carpenter of Nazareth? Is he finding work these days? In other words, he was mocking. God. I'm go- I can't wait to meet Agadon one of these days when I cross over. Without hesitation, this simple follower of Jesus replied to the question, how is your carpenter of Nazareth? Is he finding work these days? Agaton replied, perhaps he is taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build a coffin for your empire. Folks, we have the Word of God that has been given to us as a foundation for us to meditate on, to draw nourishment for our soul from. And we have a coming, returning King who has drawn us to His side. So why are we so afraid of what this generation thinks of us? We've got to stop trying to fly under the radar so we don't upset anybody. The fact of the matter is, I love the United States of America. I was born here. I'm a citizen. I was raised here. I think the American experiment was a gift from God 200 plus years ago. I think our founding fathers were men of incredible intellect and and understanding. I love this experiment that we call America. But let me tell you, if this empire ends up in a coffin sometime soon, I'll be okay. Because this empire is not my home. My king is coming. Fairly soon, I suspect. And when he comes, 
I want to be found in the middle of the fight and not hiding in a closet somewhere hoping nobody notices me. Meditate on the Word of God so that you'll be fruitful. Take rest in the coming King so you'll be bold. Fruitfulness and boldness combine to change the world. That's who we are. Father, thank you so much. Every part of this speaks to us deep in our souls. And we find in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 a beginning place for our meditation. Father, may those who are here, for those who have been touched by what you've collected here, let us begin here. Let us spend extended time understanding these two psalms as a precursor for diving into what you have in the rest of these psalms. Father, we know that the conclusion is one of praise and worship, and we know that the introduction is one of meditation on your word and resting in confidence before our coming King. Father, as we look over the course of the next three days at these poems that have been collected and preserved for us, inspire our hearts. Father, we want truth to be played out so that we are fruitful, and we want confidence to show up so that we are bold. May that be accomplished by your Spirit through your people in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.